Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Books Boys. Live from the Grand Library. The Dean and DJ. Guys, keep calm and read your tickets. Uh, PJ, we're using the Anna Karenina method here. Yes, PJ. Hello there. I am the Dean, and we are the Books Boys. This is the Books Boys show. Get it? Buy it? Books. Ah, <sighs> Books. And I, PJ, I heard it's the two-year anniversary. Oh, hey! There we go. Woo. It's two years. Can you believe it? I sure, I sure, I didn't can't. think we'd, we'd make it this far. So far. No, I didn't think so. No, I didn't think so. And it's episode 25, right? I keep thinking it's 24, but it's kind of 25. Okay. Um, yes. That is mad. That's, so we're like another, uh, you know, so we're just a quarter of a hundred. Alone, that is amazing. So let's see if we can make a hundred episodes because that would be in two years. Uh, sorry, in uh, six years' time, we can celebrate the hundreds episode. Yeah, look, if we're still alive, you know, we'll make a hundred. So. Exactly. Yeah, uh, I'm very amused because I'm just thinking about all the book recommendations. And <laughs> if you're going to keep doing stuff like Audrey Hepburn picture books, <laughs> I'm out of ideas and already. Like today's the last time I can do a recommendation. But John Millett okay, Lafferty yeah, is yeah. back from his strike. He's got his pay rise. Oh, he's, he's a back. big smiley fellow. What pay rise. He's the best. He's the best paid of all. And of just us. for the anniversary, uh, Bufanda Boys making a comeback. I got my <laughs> got my Bufanda. Yeah, Bufanda Boys. I haven't seen them in a while. There we go. Good lord, we got everything and, ready. And tis a tis a question that's been bothering me, Dean. One one singular, one unique question. Books. What's it all about? Two years. We, did we ever figure it out? Two years. Uh, you know the amount of times I've been in the toiletry section, pharmacies. You know, and the host, the host bank, trying to look for Julius Caesar. Uh, oh, by the way, Dean. Is this a holiday? Maybe it is a holiday. I don't know. Hence home, you idle creatures. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been trying to look for the old shake his spear, but I could only shake the toilet roll so much and nothing I could find. I think books are something like, maybe something related to bookworms, right? So it's a type of insect and you read, you read poems under wings or something like that. It makes sense. I don't right? know. I'm getting, I'm getting into the very metaphysical grounds here. If you guys have any clarity regarding books, just tell us what it's all about. Well, and plus, yeah, go ahead. No, just thank you. Like, yeah. Plus just send us some, some of these things, send us some of these magical books and yeah. magical 
we actually love it when people send us books um, and we love it yeah, when people call into the show to talk about their books and you can connect with us on Instagram and all the other places, booksboys.com, email us, booksboys at hotmail.com, whatever you want. But PJ, it's time to introduce this month's uh, sponsor. We're sponsored wow. by the Association for Keeping Calm and Reading Your Dickens. And they've sent us this delightful uh, adver- advertisement. Listeners, oh. were you about to scream and yell at your loved ones? Or go out into the street and protest and riot? Or were you just going to smash and break things in your home? Stop! Keep calm and read your dickens. <laughs> there we go. The Association for Keeping Calm and Reading Your Dickens. So, oh, what's right. this? They've sent us a second one. A second one? Listener. Were you about to watch that sports game or use some tools and build things? Were you going to build up party? Stop! Keep calm and read your dickens. <laughs> Paid for by the Association for Keeping Calm and Reading Your Dickens. There we go, our, our good friends. Uh, nice voice Very that uh, that guy has as well. Yeah, I mean, it sounds, yeah, I mean, it's very central, I must say. And that's a very Dickensian uh, saxophone player. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Uh, nice. By the way, just before we get stuck into the books we're reading, um, we have a quick hello. Hi, Dean. Oh. Hi, PJ. This is Anne here, Anne Wedgwood. Just calling to congratulate you on two years of Books Boys. I love your podcast and it's been great fun to be on them. Thanks so much for inviting me and... Well done again for your two years. Bye. Ah, oh, thanks, Anne. That's lovely. Send a message. Hope we don't have any more oh. uh, call-ins or crazy interruptions on the show. We I can just get down to some serious book talking, you know. I think so, <laughs> and it should be all very serious, you know, very academic, very. From now on, yeah, nothing but serious um, books. And I oh, know the party horns back. Would you? Would you believe it? <laughs> <laughs> And um, so let's let's talk about let's talk about this. Let's talk about books. What are the books that thou hast been reading this month? Well, got a pile of them here. So I started out. Um, this is not the copy I read. My copy got abandoned in Spain, but I had a second copy. Donia oh. Perfecta. Oh, I had that copy as well. Actually, I had two copies too. Oh, actually, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Donia <laughs> Perfecta by. Now, I, I did this in the wrong order, I suppose, because this one came out a year or two before Marianella, which we reviewed on the, the last episode, um, which mm. I, I didn't realize before I read them. But but just like yourself, I also first read Marianella mm. and then Don Perfecta was maybe my second or third Galdos book. Just to remind you listeners, if you don't know already, Galdos is the Spanish equivalent of Dickens being the primary realist author in Spain in the 19th century, uh, together with Clarín, who Dean does not seem to appreciate so much, apart from a few short stories. So, Doña Perfecta, yeah. what did you think? Um, I liked it, but not as much as Marianella. So that's, that's the okay. summary. It, it wasn't maybe uh, as melodramatic. As, it it uh, was Marianella. not quite as melodramatic. That's it. We're getting the catchphrases uh, in. There was no exactly, holidays. Yeah. There was no melodramas. There was no dark lit. I don't know. It's... All, no they, didn't, they didn't keep calm and read their dickens i don't know we got but look i'll tell you, you what happened so 
there's a there's a joke I like very near the beginning of the book. Actually, it's the best bit of the book. There's yeah. one one chap. He's a minor character called Lycurgus, and the chap calls him Solon, and that's funny because Lycurgus was a Spartan lawmaker, and Solon was an Athenian lawmaker. So he gets his name mixed up, and he switches him out to the Athenian one. <laughs> um, so but I thought that was it. funny. <laughs> that's such a just like insider joke, isn't it? By yeah, the way, yeah. I got awesome. Gaudos was a really uh, hardcore uh, classes, classicist. You know, he actually, before he started writing novels, he really wrote down tons and tons of pages of Greek and Latin style poetry just so he can improve his writings. I don't think he was like trying to write anything too serious, but he kind of seemed to have, like, he kind of thought of writing like as a, as like a physical practice, like even that you would just practice writing, writing, writing like the classical authors until we have last wrote mm-hmm. um, the classics. So yeah, he would be an intellectual chap indeed. So, All right, so enjoy the, that. Well, what about the story? The story, right. I'll give you the quick version, okay? So this is chap um, Pepe. Now, basically what happens is uh, he's going to marry Rosario. And the way, they, the way they figure this out is he is essentially told by his dad, go go visit your cousins. Your aunt is Doña Perfecta and your cousin Rosario. So yeah. off he goes. And the idea is that they've they've kind of done an arranged marriage between the oh. two branches of the family and um, for, for whatever reason, you know, among among the parents. So he goes off and he hangs out with them for a while and they are living in a Villa Horrenda. <laughs> and um <laughs> you know off he off he goes and they they kind of have this thing where they don't like him like they decide they decide that he's a non-believer that he's an atheist but he yeah. denies it and it's never really clear like whether he is or not you know he just denies it when mm. they when they confront him with this um but one of the big themes in this book is your more metro metropolitan modern madrid lifestyle which they accuse yeah. him of being from and they keep saying oh you can't go out without your your dukes and your duchesses and all your th- pantry and your theater shows and we're just a simple little you know backwards kind of religious town and they're, they're very very deeply religious but he says the town is just full of bandits and trash people <laughs> right so again it's that kind of dialectic between uh, the kind of non-believer metropolitan progressive versus yes. the believer village um yeah well, conservative. But there's this idea as well that basically the town's full of bandits and Doña Perfecta might be the only real upstanding person in it anyway. Um, so mm. it's kind of built on a myth to begin with, you know. Um, but eventually they're they're hanging out as a family and it start, starts out okay, but it goes downhill quickly. But he does eventually tell his cousin, you know, look, I actually came here specifically to marry you. Um, and luckily I do like you. So like that's grand and she likes him back. There's, there's, it's not a story where they don't want the arranged marriage. They're, they're both quite happy with it. And hmm. the person who's not happy with it is Doña Perfecta, the, the aunt. Hmm. She develops this sham where she pretends that she's always helping and she's essentially just gaslighting him the whole time, like pretending that she's really trying to get everything to work but actually she's the one creating a lot of obstacles for him. And, you know, that her, her daughter is sick and he can't see her for like days and days and days at a time, you know? And he's like, you're not letting me see her. Like I could just go and chat to her. Like you're the one putting the obstacles in the way, you know? Um, and it turns out that she maybe has a mental illness. She, they just, they tell her that she's, she's local, right? That she's crazy, but mm. he doubts it, you know, and it's not really clear if she is or not, but He's always respectful to her. You know, he always calls her dear aunt, you know, querida tia the whole time. Um, 
she keeps up a pretense for a long time, but eventually she does drop it. And eventually she says, maybe I've done some deceptions, but, you know, even God has to do deceptions. This is religious, like, I'm doing good work, you know, I'm doing this kind of things that God would do to stop this atheist and this non-believer from marrying my, my daughter. Where it loses me is this big, long sequence. He kind of follows the Anna Karenina method a little bit. Uh, in a short book where there's just this big long sequence of them arguing back and forward and like discussing religion and things you know and i'm like okay guys let's get the story moving a wee bit here we've been 20 pages on this you know (laughs) and there's a lot of going around in circles like but what about her mother i am her mother it's like yeah so i'm gonna marry her it's like but what about her mother it's like yeah 10 pages later we're still on this (laughs) okay let me think about this. So, um, you know, that's an interesting parallel to old Peagorio because that he uh, talks about the duties of a father and am I not a father? Mm. But I think the reason why maybe you're not um, you're not liking it so much is because Peagorio, you you a lot of thim- sympathy for him in Balzac's novel. But here, Dona Perfecta, she's the antagonist, right? So you don't really have any... Yeah, I know what you mean. You don't have any sympathy for her being a mother because you should feel she was being deceptive. Gorya wasn't being deceptive. Deceptive. Yeah. Everyone was deceiving him, so it's very different. But I remember when I was reading that again, I was reading Love, Galdos when I was a teenager, actually. And um, yeah, I remember it making an impact with me anyway, the whole novel. And really, mm. the, what what stayed with me more than anything was a setting for some reason in the story. I really have this image of this kind of, I don't know, for some reason, this kind of like somewhat dark, misty, autumn Spanish town and like everything kind of going against the protagonist. So it's interesting they're saying the story because I kind of forgot the story. But for mm-hmm. me, it's like almost this Western kind of um, story of like going against the one person who's rational okay i don't know yeah that's the impression i was left with but it made an impact with me it starts like like that um but it changes because the mother donya perfect at the end actually accuses him of having manipulated the whole time against her yeah yeah because i think a soldier arrives and they're going to take the time try to clear out the bandits and he befriends the soldier so she says like i'm not just fighting my nephew i'm fighting the whole time he's representing the government from madrid the army you know like she she feels like this nephew all of a sudden is the authority you know and he's coming to steal her kid away and but it's so strange because this is a marriage that she has requested that both participants are happy with (laughs) she's the only person who's not happy and she puts all these obstacles and they have all these big fights and she has the girl locked away and Mm. uh, at one point he sneaks in to see his his betrothed and it's a very weird scene where she unlocks like a secret door and takes him in and says oh this is going to be so secret look at this secret cabinet and they go into like a dark damp room it's like a (laughs) statue of jesus and she makes him like kiss his feet or something (laughs) i think i recall that yeah defile the statue (laughs) But I feel like this story could be very well adapted into a horror movie. Yeah, maybe. In that sense of like the manipulative motor. Uh, you know, um, interestingly mentioned Anna Karenina methods. You know, Anna Karenina was written, I think, just was being written during the time Dona Perfecta was released. But War and Peace was, had been released a few years before. And, you know, Dostoevsky was already, uh, you know, uh, all that kind of movement of big realist authors telling a minor story and really like like Flaubert, for example, like really mm. um, projecting their philosophy of religion, society, of morality, whatever. You know, maybe Galdos, being very young here, one of his early novels, was perhaps influenced by that idea um, of like, yeah, coming up. I think his idea is 
the rural versus the urban. Remember I told you last month, we've mentioned Gandos a few times. He grew up in the same island. I grew up in Gran Canaria, but he left very soon. I think at mm. 18, and he just kind of never came back. He stayed in Madrid. Um, he must have been very conflicted, though. He must have seen that kind of rough lifestyle and not really agree with it. He's very much an urban personality, Gaudos. So yeah. Obviously, in some sense, that village, even though it's not the Canary Islands, probably is very much based on what he saw yeah, at least maybe. in the inland of the of Gran Canaria. So it's very interesting, yeah. It could be, but I like it. I, I, I like her, her kind of gaslighting. She keeps saying, I'm so humble and, and you know, full of humiliation yeah. and, and she plays the victim, but really there's a non-problem and, and she's the only one causing a problem, you know? And I know I'm going on a bit about like the history of literature here, but I just want to say that this hypocrisy of religious people becomes even way more dominant in Spanish naturalism and in like Generación de 98, the 98 right. generation, and authors like uh, Miguel de Namuno, Vainclan, or Pio Baroja that sure. would that would have read Galdós as children or young adults and then written their own things. So mm-hmm. he's just starring in that big criticism of religion. And Mireya and I did a review of a Vainclan play on our Patreon, and you're going to hear a little about Unamuno in a few minutes. So. Oh, so there you go. We're going very Spanish here. Yeah. But not quite as Marinella dramatic as you wanted to. Not quite. Not there, there's that, one dramatic that, that, bit I like, right? And this is, you know, I love this in all the English Victorian novels as well. Oh, there's yeah. a chapter called The Confession and the girl's praying to God. And she decides that she must be doing something wrong to have caused all this drama. And she's like, you know, I don't know, God, you know, why don't you just kill me, God? Strike me down. Like, you know, I'm oh, completely yeah, dramatic. all these problems, you know? And it's bringing in that that Marinella drama that... Uh, that we love there. And, and she does this kind of thing a lot. And at one point she's going crazy. And he says to her, like, we've got to, we've got to cure you. And she says, no, don't cure me. I want to go crazy because I'm crazy for your love. So like, I don't care if I lose my mind and I end up dying as long as I do it for you. And he's like, I don't want you to die. And she's like, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> of course you love that. So I love oh, all that Lord. kind of stuff. Yeah. But it does get a bit actually is... towards the end when like the military kind of have to come yeah, in. Remember and I don't that, want to give yeah. any spoilers, but it all... I thought it was up. very much of a... I thought it was very much of a thriller, especially for the time. Not that I ever... I, I don't find classic novels really much of a thriller usually, but I thought this novel had me gripped. Like Gorio, but Gorio had me emotionally gripped. I thought, just like you said, there was a bit of an adventure element. I, it's still one of my favorite Galdos novels, although Marinella is my favorite. So the first one I read, but don't affect that. Like, yeah, this is still his romantic period, but he's obviously realism is coming but more. I've so got I the like quote his here. He says, my, 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 it's not just my um, nephew. My nephew is the government, the brigadier, the new mayor, the new judge. You know, he is everything in the town. He's not. Mm, like, <laughs> yeah. 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 It's like, it's like a metaphor. I like it. Yeah. Cool. So that's, nice. that's the first one. Um, Doña Perfecta. Doña Perfecta. So what I'll what I'll say is just before we get into any more, let's take two minutes to recap a little bit. PJ, you're you're back in Spain, but you've been uh, whizzing off to Germany and and Spain and, and all sorts, right? Yes, and I'm going back to Germany again now. So in the next episode, I'll be in Germany. We're I've been living. I've been living La Vida Loca, Das Verrückte Leben. And um, <laughs> yeah, so we were talking about Dean and I, like, you know, all this kind of like pay us for Patreon. And I suppose we have enough money for flights. Well, if you want us to read Don't tell them that. Don't tell them we have enough. We're struggling, <laughs> struggling desperately. Very, um, very much. Very and much. in that kind of news, want... 
I, I, you know, I visited Spain this month uh, and I visited uh, Spain during the National Day of, of Hispanidad. I was in Santiago de Compostela. I saw the pilgrims come to the cathedral. I went to Zaragoza during their regional day and had big street parties. I saw lots of bands. I went to the theater. I saw a Vijayan clan play, performed. Nice. Uh, Cabeza del Dragón. Uh, you know, I, I did lots of nice things. I was also in Vigo. I was in Madrid, of course, in El Retiro, in the park. And um, where else did I go? Uh, Sevilla also. I traveled around a lot. Um, so as we were saying, guys, please go to uh, patreon.com slash books, boys, um, and pay $3 <laughs> because we, we really need your money. Um, to, to we're, we're, struggling to pay the, we're struggling to pay the bills because we're never at home, right? That's well, the kind of I was going to say, right? It's like, you know, if they don't uh, sign up, maybe we can't do trips next year. And I was like, well, actually, no, I've already planned some trips next and year. I, but... <laughs> and I believe you've been purchasing some very, uh, very vital items, Dean. Very, you saw my very, 50 very... pounds that I spent on a, on a set of <laughs> hairbrushes, vintage hairbrushes and mirrors. I, I saw that. It's very vital. One cannot, one cannot live without a hairbrush. Did it have was it Victorian? Did it have Dickens like signature on it? No, it was like, only from or, the like, 60s. Or Taylor. <laughs> no, it's not good enough. Maybe some Irish. And a little a little half brush, you know. Um but I, I also um <laughs> I've also been engaging in a new local history class, PJ, on some some Belfast huh? history, kind of during um Victorian uh, times. And also I would have thought I would have thought that that's not Hispanic enough for you, though. It's not, but it was always available, like, to be honest. Bottom of the barrel stuff, yeah. you know, Belfast. Um, and then, of course, uh, I've started my Mexican dance. I've got my first dance coming up this weekend. So I'm very excited about that. So keeping busy, but still bringing the content. Very nice. Very nice. So what other book has thou well, the favorites book. So I mentioned Yunamono. So he wasn't the second book I read, but let's just move on to him and, and we'll do a logical sequence here. Well, just the logical sequence is, dear listeners, that we're moving up ahead in time. Miguel Dunamono is Generación de 98, 1898 generation. A critical generation, Dean, because this whole Spanish empire where the sun never sets had lost a territory in Cuba. There was a, a war in Cuba. And I believe in the Philippines and Guam. And they had to sell. So basically, Spain was very proud that they had an empire around the globe. But really, right at the end of the 19th century, they lost a lot of important territory, really silly mistakes. Um, and they lost a lot of things. And really, Spain, really for the first time in a long time, or really for the first time since the beginning of Rio Spain, started doubting that it's might that maybe not as grand. Mm-hmm. as they thought it was. And the authors reflect that. Whereas Gardos, I feel like, is still proud to be Spanish. He's very critical, uh, as well as other authors of the society. But like Miguel de Namuno really starts doubting. And Pio Baroja, for example, another 98, even more. Pio Baroja is like the most the most pessimistic, I find, of all of them. But Vianney Clan, who Dean has reviewed, and I also recommend. Um yeah, also, yeah. So in this generation, Dean, like they're either really going against Spain or they're really focusing on just regionalism. They're saying like maybe buying clan is like only focusing Galicia and it's not yeah, yeah. kind of F off Spain kind of thing. So a lot of negativity going on. But what did you think of Tia Tulia? It's not, I didn't read that one for Nunamuno, but I mentioned the okay. one that I have. So I, I actually just finished this one today, but we'll get to it 
I cheated yeah. this month because I still read a lot of books, but they were all shorter books. And the reason is because, oh. uh, to let the listeners in on a secret behind the curtain, we're recording a few days earlier than usual. And also, I didn't read during my holiday, so I actually missed like half of the month's reading. So I had to squeeze in a lot of small books. <laughs> Well, shame on you, Dean. Cheap I, tricks. Cheap I expect tricks. the shame. See, I don't have a booing sound effect because this is a, a happy science only that I've, I've loaded Ooh. up. So, <laughs> Ooh. Um, so la, la Tia Tula, Miguel de Unamuno. I'm going to say I. it was all right. I don't find his writing style to be as sophisticated as, say, Galdos. Wait, it doesn't try. Yeah. 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 You know, and and that put me off a little bit. Like it was fine. I liked it, but I didn't love it. You know, mm. uh, it, it just didn't have that slightly higher kind of level of of sophistication that I like. So basically, we have yeah. La Tia Tula. Um, that's kind of her nickname, the Tula, uh, Tula but Gertrudis is her uh, her full uh, first name. Essentially, her her sister Rosa, and then this chap um, Ramiro. They they want to get together, so she kind of encourages them to get together. They she's highly respected within the family, so she gives her opinion and says, "Yes, you should definitely get married." Um, even though you kind of wonder if maybe he would have preferred to marry her, but she's like, "No, no, marry Rosa. Like this is what's going to happen." And you know, have kids. One of the things where it loses me is there's a bit of an inbuilt old-fashioned sexism where they constantly talk about you know essentially the role of a woman is to be a mother and reproduce like that's 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 it for these people you know um and the world is very small and very insular it's all just the family in the home you don't really see much outside influence and even when there's lots of kids later it's all just what do we do with our lives we raise the next ones and look after our brothers. Like nothing's happening oh, it's outside. Con- <laughs> it's continuing this the the theme of Godos, right? Even though this is um, Godos's writing, don't prefer the seventies. And Tia Tula would be perhaps wouldn't that be maybe the very beginning of the twentieth century? Um, but anyway, I want to. I can't quite remember now the date. I'll double, um, double check the date now. I, I, I had it earlier. Yeah, Oh no! See, when I Google Latia, it's so there's a movie from the '60s, but the book was written oh, yeah. in 1921. 1921. Okay, fair enough. But when I Google um, Tia Tula, I'm getting uh, some kind of skincare uh, product. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, so really, almost 50 years later, and they're sharing the theme, and it's a very big theme in Spain. This uh, those whole kind of like the city versus the rural area, and yeah, so he's discussing the. He's discussing that, and I find like this generation is now making it more extreme. They're mm-hmm. really even finding it more extreme. Yeah. Um, I there's there's two completely different ways that you can read this book. Okay, and that's yeah. the, that's what's good about it. So one way is this poor lady. You know, she's trying to get this love match put together. She herself never gets married. Rosa dies quite early in the novel. She takes over raising the kids. She's very kind. She hangs out with the family. She's teaching them, you know, essentially her ways, but it's all she knows, right? Um, about being, you know, good to their brothers, being good mothers and this kind of thing. And you can kind of read it that she's kind of selfless. But on the other hand, you can read it that maybe she's manipulative from the beginning and she's trying to get into this family. Like all of a sudden, you know, there's a, a scene early on where Rosa says like, now that I'm married, my husband's always busy. And she's like, yeah, or he invents things to be busy with. And then all of a sudden she starts turning up at the house every day and she's like, I'll help. 
And then she kind of takes over. And after Rosa dies, she's like, well, I'm the mother now. She keeps all constantly saying, I'm the mother. And the kids should call me mother. Don't call me aunt. Call me mama. Constantly in, in the book, mm. you know? So you could kind of read it that maybe... She, and I didn't like her for most of the book. And I think I reconciled, you know, eventually. But I, I kind of read most of it in the second interpretation. I was only really at, at the end that I kind of wandered. Um so you could kind of see her as being not so great. Um, and she has, again, this martyr, this self-sacrificing kind of like thing that she's imposing, just like in the last book, you know. Hmm. Um, but another interpretation is that she is a good person. I'm going to say, because I read a little bit about the movie, there's a big difference here. Because in the book, um, it's stated that he constantly... So after Rosa dies, the husband is always asking Tula to marry him next. And she says, no, I'm going to be your wife in the sense that I will live in the house with you and raise your children. But like, there's no relation between us, even though we like each other. Yeah. So he feels really okay. kind of let down by this. And then even when he expresses interest in other women, she's like, no, you shouldn't do that. That's sinful. But I'm also not going to mm-hmm. give you anything. And he's kind of like uh, in dire straits. Like in the movie, mm. he rapes her, but that does not happen. Oh, oh. Okay. Okay, okay. Oh, sorry, sorry. Let me rephrase that. In the movie, he tries to. The other way around. Okay, okay. No, in the movie, he tries to rape her, and then he rapes a relative instead. Nine, oh. None of that happens in the book. Or maybe you're supposed to read a little more into it. He makes advances. She says, no, he stopped. He, you know, and that's it. He says, okay, then we're not going to get together. He then gets together with a 19-year-old kind of orphan girl. Um, but it's never stated in the book that there's any kind of, like, sexual assault violation or anything like that. But the movie maybe up the drama or something i don't i don't know okay okay because i was really confused when i read the movie script and i went back and looked at my notes from the book and it's like no it's it's not stated in the book you know um but in the end he does and you know and and he he brings this other girl in and they have more kids so in the end there's a lot of kids um, one of the main themes is that she doesn't want to marry because then if she has kids with him she's afraid she'll not be as close with Rose's kids. Right. She's right okay, yeah. And she's like, then I'm like their stepmom and I've got my own kid. You know, so that's like one of the themes in the book. So she just wants to keep things as they are, you know? Right. Okay. So it's just it's it's a book about maternity and all its it's aspects. All it, about maternity. Yeah. Positives, negatives, and, and everything. And the man, the guy, you know, it isn't really that important, to be honest. It is really all about her. And even after she's, you know, in, in the final scenes when we see the next generation and the kids are a bit older and they're looking after people, they're always still referencing her, even though she's, you know, gone by this point. So it's nice to kind of see that. And it was those scenes where I realized maybe she's not so bad, you know? Mm, it reminds me of uh, Ursula, the the first modern figure of 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez is also that big theme of family tradition and like yeah. this one big imposing mother figure who even after she dies her her persona still um still carries on. You I know, had to and, check uh, DJ just real quick when I saw the second generation come in I had to double check that he wasn't Latin American um but uh <laughs> <laughs> that is a very Latin American thing to do. Um you know Miguel Donamuno I read um only one novella of his was was i think his last one uh san manuel bueno martyr yeah yeah um san emmanuel the the good martyr and you know that's just very very small of it's more like a short story but usually released by itself um it's a i i really recommend that book essentially the theme is 
a priest who does not believe in God, but pretends that he believes in God in order to keep up Christian morality and to keep right. up the Christian yeah, morality yeah. alive in the village. So he is a person that people look up to in order to keep up their faith, but not really keep up their faith, but to keep up their more standard. He kind of sacrifices his own identity and just keep, goes along with being a good uh, Saint Manuel, and he's a martyr. But he's a martyr not because he's a martyr because he's sacrificing his own his own non-belief. And mm-hmm. you know, uh, Unamuno talks a lot about this, about spiritual um, spiritual loss and yeah. And he says like, well, he talks a lot about his books. He's, he's a philosopher, so don't forget. So if his writing seems dry, it's because he is a sensual philosopher who also wrote a lot of philosophy books. And he talks about that the most tragic thing about life is simply that it will end. So that art is all about extending our life force. It's all about living beyond our physical capabilities, which can be an honorable thing. So Shakespeare lives on, or it could be just a almost futile, anxiety-ridden thing as well. So it depends which approach you want to take. But he is a type of unique existentialist, different though than Camus or Kierkegaard. He's not as nihilistic, I would say, or not as not as dramatic, I would say. He just tries to be more practical. Mm-hmm. And so that book really describes this philosophy as well. As yeah, way. and I should point out as well, just to, on what you said, religion plays a big part in this as well, and she's very religious. Right, and all this yeah. kind of stuff. She meets the priest regularly and tells him he's wrong about things because she's like, yeah. knows more than he does. You know, that's the idea. Interesting. Um, so there's Interesting. a lot of that, and she's kind of argumentative. And part of some of those aspects made me, you know, not, not like her, but... Um, I don't. I don't like this kind of martyr. Like I'm the victim, you know. Kind of for that that kind of manipulation. I don't really love, and, you know. And what I what I like about the nov- novella Simon Bueno is that he doesn't really ever do that. Doesn't do self pity, and it's a very simple story. And you don't really see much insight to his thoughts. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are two things I just want to tri- trivia. If you don't mind, Dean, I just uh-huh. really like. Uh, I, I really like Una Muna as a person. Though. I think he's got a very interesting. There are a lot of interesting stories that are sometimes contradictory about him. Now, he's essentially a philosopher teacher, right? So that's one thing that you probably like. A bit nice. different than the others of his generation. People about, you know, Weinklan is like read this bohemian, long bearded fellow. Yeah, yeah. You know, whatever. Pio Barocha is this really kind of like like negative person, <laughs> negative person really, in his Arbo de la Ciencia. That's a really depressing book. But he was, uh, Una Muna was really, I think, slightly older than Duration. He was a bit of an outsider then. Philosophy teacher from Salamanca, I believed. And here are a few things I find interesting. He was exiled. <laughs> he was exiled and put into how, uh, imprisoned inside of his own house. So that's how controversial it was for the government of his time. And I don't think really anyone liked him from the politics because he, he was definitely an anti fascist, definitely. Mm-hmm. But he kind of also, I think, supported Franco at the beginning, just right. at the beginning. So there are a few things that were, but essentially was a Republican against the Franco section. And he was exiled into Fortuntura, the island beside me. And of course, he wrote a lot of bad things about the Canary Islands. So I obviously have some mixed feelings about him because I feel that he only disliked Fortuntura because he was forced to stay on that island. Because really being forced to be in an island full of sun, is that really so tragic, Dean? (laughs) I would like to undergo this punishment. (laughs) But anyway, uh, he was, and at the end of his life, there was a big discussion. 
he had was a politician, uh, basically a fascist. And he, he knew it was the end. He knew he died just before the Spanish Civil War, I think, really started or just at the beginning started. He died in 1936. But he already said, um, convenceréis. No, sorry. Venceréis, pero no convenceréis. You will, you will beat us. You will um, be victorious in your battle. But you will never convince us. Yeah. And I think this is interesting because he foreshadowed the whole Franco era where they he knew they were going to win, but no one was ever really uh, convinced by mm-hmm. Francoism and by any dictatorship, right? That's I thought that's a brilliant phrase. Vencedes, but no convencedes. It also rhymes. It's good, yeah. So I thought that was awesome. epic, yeah. But I want to mention one thing real quick um before we move on. Guys get over to patreon.com slash books voice. And as I say, for £2.50 or €3, Euros, $3, here's what we've released since the last episode. We did Film Fellows, V for Vendetta. We did two episodes of Dark Player Streamers, where Robert and I reviewed The Sandman. We released two episodes of Playboys Extra, PJ. We did The Importance of Being Earnest with Alex. And wow. also, we did an Inspector Calls and... With Mireya, I did La Fundación, the um, Antonio Buero Vallejo play. So actually three episodes of Playboys this month. So that's a crazy amount of stuff. Go and get it. Oh, yeah. The facts that will be presented are true. Yes, PJ. Hello there. Dean is always joined by Mireya. Say hello. Hello. Dark Place Robert and Playboy Alex. Doing all right. Glad to be here again. So I've given you those nicknames. I'm not a fan of that one. <laughs> well, that's where people will know you from. That's why you're going to know me from that one. Hello, Mother. Can you hear me? Join us for Shakespeare written, Spanish plays and poetry, rock star interviews, film reviews, Dark Place Dreamers, and more. Patreon.com slash there we go, guys. You can get us on the Patreon. And just mentioning Alex and Robert, it would uh, such a shame that we we don't have them here to celebrate our oh, yeah. anniversary with us. You know, ah, such a pity, isn't it? Hold on a second, uh, PJ. I think we're getting a call here. I'm just looking Another at my old-fashioned caller ID. It says the call's coming from the Playboy Mansion. Let's see, uh, just saying what? Who have we got uh, on the line here? You got uh, Dean and PJ on Books Boys. Hey, it's Alex. Oh my gosh, Playboy Alex! There oh we go. Well, there our, go. Our, our mutual friend. Our mutual yeah. friend, Playboy Alex. <laughs> How are you doing there? Not too bad. bad. We're just yourself, we're sir? just working our way through our uh, through our two year anniversary episode. Well, the th- and the thing is, we've realized, oh, yeah. Alex, you know, Spanish and Italian. Oh, the crowd! They are applauding us, PJ. Exactly. We're celebrating Spanish and Italian literature because so far we haven't discovered any other kind of book. We'll see if someone comes up with something else. <laughs> but what about yourself, Alex? What are, what are you up to? Oh, you know, just hanging out in the Playboy Mansion. Uh... That's it, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Petting the bunnies. That's what they I heard right? a rumor, Alex, that you have been reading a Shakespeare. Uh, not Shakespeare. You are reading a Shakespeare. You've been reading a Dickens. Is that right? Yeah. Well, Shakespeare, Dickens, no. all the same. Yeah, here and there there is english <laughs> literature right there <laughs> but you'll have to you'll have to call back in and and discuss I will that tell you one about that, when yes. the uh when you finish it yeah congratulations so on two years 
Oh, thank you very much. But hold on a second. PJ, we're getting another call what? from the what? Dreamscape. Let's uh, no. see who's calling in from the Parallel Dreamscape. Universe. Hello there. You got Dean and PJ and uh, Alex and Alfred and everyone on the line. Who's, who's this? I love how you have a phone that works for two distinct callers at the same time and can, you know, host <laughs> that old time. You never heard what of the, the four way calling? He's heard of four I mean, ways. But... Not on the old rotor phone, no. <laughs> I imagine you Robert, this is... rotor phone. But this Sorry, is metaphysics now. Robert. Hi, how are you getting on? We've got Congratulations Robert. in two years. Awesome, thank you very much. I need to get distinct ringtones, so it's going to be like, you know, some kind of spooky dark oh, place yeah. theme for Robert, and then it'll be like some kind of sexy theme for Playboy Alex, you know. <laughs> I thought I had a distinct Can we switch those? Song? No. Switch them, yeah, <laughs> we could do that. <laughs> we could do indeed. So we got all the, all the cool kids in the block. That's, we got everyone awesome. here. And Robert, I hear that you are also reading a Dickens. No. Oh, yeah, but... no, I, I've just finished A Christmas Carol there. Um, and funnily enough, it's currently ce- uh, celebrating Diwali. So it's a very, very festive time for myself altogether um, at the wrong time, just come creeping up onto Halloween as well. I feel very gluttonous at the moment. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so uh, <laughs> most of the time, most of the time, I just read books to spice Dean. I'm going to read his favorite book and pick holes. Oh no! And I was devastated to find out that this was a perfect book. Yes, it was. It was oh. just magical. I, I'll still hold that the Muppets um, movie adaptation <laughs> is still the best Christmas Carol movie, but. Um, <laughs> The actual book, I was blown away by, actually. Good. Uh, now, did we see this? I saw this in the theatre with, with both of you. Did, yes. I, did we all see this? Alex we did see it in the theatre. Yes. Belfast. Uh, yeah. Grand I Opera House. So. Yep. A year, ago, a year ago, to be fair. Oh! But, yeah. <laughs> yes, I remember that. We went to the Grand Opera House and we actually saw a play, uh, live adaptation. I was yeah. very disappointed with A Ghost of Christmas Future, <laughs> in that particular adaptation, because it was always a very creepy, even in the book, it does an amazing job on producing this weird creature. And uh, no, it was it was quite disappointing in the play. But my favorite part of the entire book is, you know, grabbing onto the ghost of Christmas past and the hood falls back and you expect, what are you expecting? Oh, it's a bedpost. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so... Like, I guess we all know the book, you know, we all know the story, whether we've read it or seen it or whatever. So we don't need to get into too much detail. Um, but what, what, you know, you've said about your favorite part. Was there anything you didn't like about it? No, actually, uh, you know, I, I just devoured the book. I was reading through it, um, constantly nearly missing my tube stops because I didn't want to put it down. Um, <laughs> you know, just nearly being late for work and nearly lost my job over this book. It was that good. Um, that's what we, that's what we hope for, you know. The similes, the pacing, the themes, everything was just perfect and spot on. Um, mm. Even the concept of the, go- uh, the ghost Marley, and it's not done any justice in any movie I've seen of this, but the concept that Marley was sitting there, it's a spooky and festive thing all wrapped up into one. And I don't know why, but that seems mm. to make you know, the Christmas time, the Christmas magic, all the more magical, knowing that there's some sort of horrors out there, these, I don't yeah, know, Santa yeah, Claus, Cthulhu mean. things. Yeah. I know what you mean, yeah. Hmm. Oh, well, guys, 
I don't want to take up too much of everyone's time, but I want to say that we're so happy to be here on our party episode. And uh, yay! yay, the party horn! Woo! Thanks so much for taking the time to call in. Alex, we'll have to get another chat with you when you when you finish your Dickens as well. Yes, I, I gotta say I love your crowd because <laughs> they just disappear very quickly as fast as they show up. They're just gone. I've I've <laughs> muted their mic. I've muted their mic. Um, <laughs> but they're actually they're actually parting on exactly nonstop. But we we should we all remember to, to mute them. Keep calm and read our Dickens. Hi, PJ and Dean. This the Speak Up Sis lady Angel Charmaine calling in all the way from Augusta, Georgia, in the U.S. Just wanting to say happy two-year anniversary. (laughs) You two are amazing. Continue doing what you're doing. You are inspiring a whole new generation to read. And I appreciate that. Take care and blessings on a year three. for you. And I just want to go back to Anamuna. I know I've been going on about him, but... There are just there's one more thing I'd like to mention. Una Muna was considered um, among the Spanish academics a specialist on Portuguese literature. You know, this seems very random, but stick with me. You know, Una, Muna, Una Muna made a point that as a Spanish person who loves literature, he should really he should he really wanted to get into Portuguese and Catalan literature, Iberian literature. Right. And he really, and you know, really, no Spanish person I know ever reads Portuguese literature. Mm. Like Saramago, maybe, but it, it's just I feel that the whole concept of if you understand your neighbor read their literature makes complete sense. Sure. Obviously, it's nice to read some Japanese U.S. literature, but maybe if you're ever in, if you're Swedish and you're not getting along well with your Danish or Latvian neighbor, why not read the literature? So that's just Sorry, something I'm, I just I'm want confused, to add PJ, well. because I was under the impression that they only wrote books in Spanish. Yes, that is confusing. <laughs> so what is Portuguese uh, all that stuff? Yeah. And talking about that, Dean, but I have read an Italian play. Oh, wow. So obviously there are at least Italian plays and we're moving on to well, hold the on, same sorry. time period. PJ, PJ, does that mean I need to redo our branding? I've just, I was going to rename us from Books Boys to Chicos de los Libros. Have I got to change that? Because you've told me that because, there's more than just Spanish literature right there. Well, this is very confusing, right? Because I thought, I thought that's all it is, Spanish literature, right? People mentioned Dickens and Shakespeare, but I think those are brands. Guillermo Shakespeare, I've heard of, yeah. Well, maybe, yeah, Guillermo, that makes more sense, yeah. <laughs> But we're not moving ahead in time. We're actually sticking with the time. A com- contemporary, I think he was even, let me think, get this straight. I believe he was born and died on the same year as Miguel de Namuno. And I'm just wow. going to double check that. I'm just going to double check that. And I'm talking about, oh, no. Okay. Miguel de Namuno was born in 1864 and died in 1936. I'm talking about Luigi Pirandello, who was born three years later, 67, and died in 1936 as well. Now, Luigi Pirandello, a Nobel Prize winner of 1934, uh, for, quoting, his almost magical power to turn psychological analysis into good theater, unquote. 
Uh, Luigi Pirandello is famous nowadays as a playwright, as, a, as basically the quintessential playwright, as long as the second playwright Nobel Prize winner, Dario Fo, in the 90s. Right. But Luigi Pirandello came first. Essentially absurdism, but a prototype of absurdism, still some coherency. Now, I know you're not too fond of um, Waiting for Godot, Dean. Um, not too you would fond. Be glad. Those, those were the mild words that I used when we read that play. <laughs> well, I love uh, Waiting for Godot, and I love Ionesco, and I love um, all these absurdist plays. Pinandello is not an absurdist, though, I would say. He just uses a lot of absurdist uh, traits and a lot of, yes, I suppose a lot of... Um, uh, meta uh, literature as well. So he's famous for a play called uh, Six Characters in Search of the Author, uh, which is basically just the way it sounds. They're just looking for the author. But I read the play written straight after that, I believe 1922, I believe. So really, we're talking about the same time period as La Tiatula. Um, and this play is called Henry the. Oh, I'm getting confused. Henry the Fourth. Henry the Fourth, right. Indeed, and do not do not quake in your boots, Dean. It's really an historical play a la Chacas Piara. Mm-hmm. Well, I only so, like my Henrys when they come in six parts. Well, indeed you do, yeah. So it isn't, <laughs> I'm afraid, that. Uh, um, essentially, Enrico y Cuarto is not an historical play at all. It's a modern play. It's about someone who believes he is Henry IV, as in Henry the Fourth, the Emperor of 11th century Germany and then Italy as well. So a real person, but essentially the story is quite simple. Um, they enter. Well, we're in a setting that looks like a palace, but for some reason there's also like a butler who appears in modern, at least the 1920s clothing. And we got like these four chaps who are dressed in 11th century clothes and they're kind of saying, what are you doing? You can't be wearing this. What if Enrico sees you? What if the king sees you? Mm-hmm. The emperor. And it says like, well, what we? And the, and the butler's like, oh, what are, you, what are you doing? But they're like, no, go away, go away. They are playing an act. So the actors are acting in the play. This is very Pirandello-esque. Meta, meta. Right. And they are doing this because Enrico doing a carnival or kind of a carnival festival fell down off his horse while playing the part of Henry the Sixth and when he awoke he believed he was Henry the Sixth and basically lives in his head in the eleventh century. Um so that's what it's all about. Um but let me go let me just take a step back a bit. It doesn't begin with Enrico the uh the fourth or Henry the Fourth it begins with um, some characters that he that Henry IV knew. So this is what's a bit confusing. And reading it in Italian was like, I think there's some Sicilian words. He's a Sicilian, so it's a bit different. Right, a wee bit, yeah. It was quite difficult, but I, I managed. I managed. And it starts off with confusing, though not just because of the language. It's confusing because it does start off like a historical play, but then there's like a butler, and these historical figures do appear that existed in the 11th century. So you got Lady Matilda Spina. This is very important uh, because she was kind of an arch enemy of Henry. Yet it's implied that maybe Henry IV was in love with her, but the reason why she is an arch enemy is because she supported the Pope 
whereas Henry IV at the time was trying to get uh, trying to go against the Pope. That's essentially the reason. Right. And the Pope is a, is a, doesn't exist in the play, but he's a constant threat, an outsider threat. A big theme in the play is like non-existing threats, like just this kind of paranoia that's really in Henry IV inside, but also in the other characters, I feel. So we've got Lady Matilda Spina. We've got the four figures that are kind of like, you know, kind of like the, the special service of the emperor. And they're, they're more like comic relief. So we've got Lady... Matilda Spina, we got Frida, her daughter, we got the Baron Tito Belcredi, Matilda's kind of lover, just not sure. We've got also um, Nolly, uh, De Nolly, who's a kind of who's who's uh, married to just married Frida, the daughter of Lady Matilda, and we've got the Doctor as well. And the Doctor is really this kind of like ultra scientific figure, kind of. I feel like he's kind of foreshadowing some kind of fascist kind of ideology. This kind of really practical, we're going to analyze this person, dissect. He wants to dissect Henry IV. He wants to really psychoanalyze him, even mm-hmm. though he doesn't use that word. But really, apart from the doctor, everyone's acting apart. And it does become clear after a while that, they're, they're, they, that they know that they're not these historical figures. They're just really acting, but they're really into their part as well. And essentially, the play is about them really being scared of what they're doing, but playing along with Henry IV. And when Henry IV appears, he um, reacts very crazily, I would say. There is a, right from the beginning, he shows respect and then disrespect from one nanosecond to the next. And what I do like about this play is um, that Henry IV does give some interesting pessimistic world's insight in the sense of Hamlet it reminded me of or or maybe Richard III so it does become Shakespearean in the mm-hmm. in the speeches I would say okay but for me I have a problem with the length it's a long play 90 pages and it's too much I feel like and I feel like there's not enough action like in Is the it, sense of Hamlet at least was compare, more compare like the length of Shakespeare because Shakespeare's are pretty long anyway yeah yeah, I mean, no, it isn't as, yeah, it's, it's, it's probably as long as a short Shakespeare play, but Shakespeare does, Shakespeare is entertaining. <laughs> oh, it is, it is, though, like, you know what I mean? Like, okay. um, and in this guy, we're not like, sure, right? <laughs> well, with Pinandello, I feel like it's a bit too much into the whole philosophy and psychoanalysis, and I, that's interesting. I think I would have enjoyed this play more when I was a teenager and I was reading more Freud and, and Marx and all those fellows, I would have enjoyed more of a story, but I do enjoy the writing style. I do think he's in, I do think it's, I can't imagine it being translated. I'd love to see it translated, but it's beautiful Italian and very interesting concepts about, about the, um, about time, about life. So Henry IV has a line in it. I'm not really quoting. I'm just this is by memory. Actually, he says something along the lines of that tomorrow would be just like today, and then the next day will be just like today. We are just continuing on, and we think he gives an interesting metaphor with like just just when we think that we're holding on to our lives like serpents, the serpents slide away from our hands and things disappear. So it becomes an ultra pessimistic 
depressing play, to be honest. It's not, it's not okay. enjoyable. That's not your kind. So I, I mean, That's not the kind that you like. It's not, it's not dark lit. Let's be honest. It's not dark lit. No it's suit not here. The, the king of, um, king of literature, uh, our good friend, Dr. Dr. Seuss. <laughs> Recall to last month. That's all. <laughs> oh, no. But uh, I'm afraid he isn't Dr. Seuss. Um, but Pirandello, yeah, highly recommend him. Similar to Unamuno, wasn't clearly an anti-fascist, but he did support definitely Mussolini at the beginning. But he kind of soon realized Mussolini was a madman, as most people did eventually yeah. realize, obviously. Uh, however, he did controversially give his Nobel Prize medal to the Mussolini government to be turned into material to build things. Kind of crazy. But on the other hand, he refused. Uh, Mussolini offered that he would pay his funeral when he died, and he refused that. So he refused to have a Mussolini um, funded funeral. To note just a few interesting things, his uh, Pirandello's wife became crazy after like a financial crisis. He he actually grew up in a in a well um, established family, Pirandello, rich family, but they lost a lot of money when one of their sulfur mines became inundated, and his wife kind of had a nervous breakdown and never recuperated. So and it really affected Pirandello because he would just kind of he would work hard and write, but then at nighttime he just kind of take care of a, of a just rambling woman actually right. who had to be taken and she had to be she she was put into an asylum at the end but it really affected his life and Pirandello started off as a novelist short story writer and he only really started writing these quintessential plays late in his career like I think in his 50s so around the 1920s just after she was put into an asylum so I think maybe it's always like a homage or to his wife, or at least him dealing with the pains he must have, he must have had. Um, yeah, like so he obviously observed madness, and mm-hmm. I think it was difficult for him. So he had to write about madness. Uh, it's a difficult play to read, and you do feel the pain. But I do mm-hmm. recommend it for its concepts and. Do you? Great I'm idea. not. I'm not convinced that you do recommend it. <laughs> I do recommend it if you're in a right state of mind. I found it a bit depressing. I, I thought, like, I wanted my Dr. Seuss after a while reading it. Yeah, but I was, it, really, yeah. I was really enjoying the beginning, you see, and I really loved the characters. I thought it was a he, had a... he has a unique ways of describing characters even physically, which I thought, like, okay, this is like no person could look like this. He makes one of them look like a bird mm. as well. And I thought, that's, uh, that's very Dr. Seuss-esque. I like that. Okay. So, Pirandello... Uh, quintessential player, right? Um, it's been translated into English by Tom Stoppard, so it's a, it's a well-regarded um, translation. Don't forget, he's a very famous British playwright, so very much respected. Just not my doc-lit Dr. Seuss material, which I sure, like right sure. now. All right. Well, back to me. PJ, this one Unfortunately, um, our, our other um, Patreon uh, co-host, well, we did a, a few things. We're finished with them now. Uh, Mireya wasn't able to be here for, for our anniversary, but she did send me this yeah. book. Um, Ramon J. Sender, Requiem por un Capesino Español. Uh, I believe you've heard another, of this book. Another Spanish classic, yeah. We're moving mm. on slightly ahead in time. I believe this would be maybe the early 50s, late 40s. Yeah, and we have this signed here. 
um, I'll show you this uh, later, but it's it's um, it's signed oh. to ourselves, to Dean and PJ, to enjoy the book and a hug from the Vice President of El Patiath. So if you go to El Patiath.es, the it's a Spanish website, obviously, this is a mm. an association, um, association Asociación Cultural El Patiath. And what they're doing, obviously, they're in this town, um, Tauste, which is in Aragon. And that's why they sent this particular book, because it's set in an unknown town in Aragon. Um, oh. And obviously, with me having been in Zaragoza, I was just in Aragon. And I got to see... And I just want to mention to listen, And I want right. to mention, listeners, I, I, my, my dad has a country house in Aragon, so I would spend most of my summers there. So I'm very fond mm-hmm. of Aragon, indeed. I would like my congratulations to PJ and Dean, the book boys. Their blogs have given me a lot of pleasure over the past two years. When I think about PJ and Dean, I'm reminded of Oliver Goldsmith's words about the village schoolmaster in his epic poem, The Deserted Village. And still they gazed, and still the wonder grew, that one small head could carry all he knew. Well, in the cases of Dean and PJ... Two average size heads. Did you get my drift? Keep up the good work, boys. So I, I haven't read this novel, but I only know about it. Okay. Well, basically, they they are this society's purpose is to promote Taos Day, right? Just the culture, history, and that kind of thing, and and they do good work. So so check them out. Um, wow. And they've they've okay. kindly given us um, this book with a lovely message inside. Oh, so requiem for a Spanish. Peasant, I guess, is the is a translation for for Campesino, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Now this is short. I mean this this lovely version comes with a lot of introduction, a lot of other notes, but the actual book right. itself is about seventy five pages. Have okay. you noticed that most Spanish books by now have like really long introductions by academics? They love that kind of thing. Yeah, I, yeah. I like that they do that because not so. I like that they take it so seriously that they have to get some academic specialists talking as long about the book as the long as the books on this. I think yeah, yeah. It's 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 fifty fifty like intro and actual I'm, book. <laughs> But the Unamuno book I got was from uh, Catedra. I love Letras Catedra because they're really kind of academic. And like really, the introduction is longer than the novella. Wow. It was longer. So, I mean, sometimes it's, sometimes it's like that. But so yeah, tell me about it. What we have in this one is, I mean, look, it's really nice. And it's nice to see, obviously, something set in Aragon where, where I just was and where we, we now both have good memories. Um, but it is short. So, you know, you, you're not going to get a huge amount of kind of character development but essentially it's a it's a tale so we have this guy Mosen Mijan and he has to do a, a requiem for a chap who has um died okay and mm. uh, Paco and he's going to do this service and in the meantime he's just kind of reflecting so this is a book of reflection where he's thinking about Paco's life because he knew him basically he knew him from birth to death so he's reflecting on on the life of this boy and we have some kind of flashback scenes with the boy. We have some modern scenes with the chap, Mosen, kind of just thinking and reflecting. And he's kind of not banging his head off the wall, but he's kind of, but well, lightly banging his head off the wall to the point where there's a mark where he's always kind of well, in the same spot. Which supposedly Mussolini used to do to his fellow classmates. Just a little, wow. little link to Mussolini. And uh, the third 
interesting thing is there's a boy who's just working there, like in the church or whatever, you know, uh, helping out. And he comes in and out and in and out, but he's always kind of singing and, and humming this kind of ballad while he comes in and out and, and goes about his work. But the lyrics, although it's just a made up little song or whatever, the lyrics always kind of give you little insights into the parts of the story that you're on as well. So it all kind of links up. So it's very, it's very superbly crafted. Okay, okay. Interesting. It's, it's very well written. But to give a quick, quick rundown, you know, on the story. So this guy, Paco, seems like a really, really lovely kid. So one of the first things they do is, you know, Mossen takes him out. He says, you know, I, you know, his parents allow him to take him out and he kind of goes on his rounds. He's doing his kind of religious duties in the time, you know. And he sees this one family and, and he's very sad. He kind of says no one's coming to see them and no one's helping them and they're poor. And he makes this initial immediate strong connection. Like, why aren't we helping these people, you know? And Mosen, well, whilst he's a good guy, I guess he's old and he's seen a lot of this. And he's like, look, there's poor people even in the next town. Like, there's nothing special about this family, you know? But the yeah. kid is like, but they're poor and they clearly need help and he's just a nice person and he has a little bit of the naivete of course but yeah. he kind of wants to see well what can we do to help them and then he says well actually their son could have helped but he's in jail so that it's like okay maybe are they good people well yeah we think they're good people just the son did something bad and you know so they're trying to teach a little bit about morality to the kid as well you know and oh. um, which is which is nice and he gives his, you know, they, they talk about the sermon and he talks about like the kiss of Judas and all these kind of like uh, dramatic titles for, for some of the sermons that he's doing. And um, But what's really yeah. interesting about the boy is they say, what do you want to be? Would you like to be a priest? Would you like to be a, a general in the army? You know, what do you want to do? And he says, I want to be a laborer like my dad. And he glorifies yeah. this kind of peasantry, yeah. you know, and he's like yeah that's that's all i want to do and they 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 talk about what if the king gets chased away um, and we kind of bring in this revolution and he's kind of like well i don't care who the king is i care if the crops grow and if the if the the, you know the vines are are growing and and we're gonna have wine and and whatever else so so he's really very agriculturally minded he doesn't care about the you know politics the big sphere kind of things he's just like yeah what's happening in the in the day-to-day with these crops and these poor people you know, so kind of like a Hemingway approach to the old man in the sea, kind of glorifying the, kind of glorifying the non-intellectual, in a sense. You know, kind of glorifying the person who deals with land and the sea directly with his hands. Yeah, it's 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 Wonder nice that. to glorify that because probably we don't see that enough, especially in the books no. I read. <laughs> well, because no, but because authors write about what they know about. They usually write about other authors or intellectuals, whatever. So it's nice to see that too. Yeah, um, but I, I like it because it's someone who's a bit simplistic but lovely, you know. And I'll give you an example of the naivete. They they're talking about the kind of family and things, and they say, "Well, the the son was maybe not so good." And he says, "Well, was he was he bad?" And he says, "Well, look, he can't have been that bad." I say, "Well, why not?" So because if he was that bad, they wouldn't be poor. He would have stolen money for them. So again, he's mm-hmm. kind of using this child logic but it's like it does also make sense you know <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah i like it okay that's that's the book i'd like to read yeah. actually and it's short it's accessible i'm not going to spoil too much about the ending but i will just kind of hint that the boy does eventually get into some trouble okay some mm. legal difficulties 
and it's sad. Let's just let's just put it that way. Um, and now that's why Mosen is having to reflect on his life and and do this requiem. And don't forget Ramon uh, Ramon Sender. He also fought in the civil war. So we're talking a lot about that. These are authors were uh, uh, more or less the same time period. Now he's later than Unamuno de, or than Pirandello, mm-hmm. but he was in Spanish civil war. His wife was murdered in the civil war. He had to escape Spain because Franco, you know, wouldn't have him. You know, he was forced to be in the USA and forced to like sign an anti-communist manifesto because otherwise, but he wasn't against the communists. Obviously, he was more of a socialist. Mm. So he was forced to do things, forced to, and a tough life. You know, he couldn't really come back to Spain until Franco died. You know, so yeah, obviously, I, I he had to have like a pessimistic ending or maybe even glorify a bit that. What he misses about Aragon being, he he himself was Aragonese, so he probably missed that kind of person. He, mm-hmm. Maybe maybe some part of him wanted to wish that he that he had been that right, become like this intellectual, political, maybe. politically involved writer. Yeah. So just wanted, to mention, yeah. it's 1953. I just looked up the exact year for us. Yeah, um, and just to be clear, the working title was Mosen Mijan, which is the the chap's name. But they took they changed the title because they didn't want to, or uh, Sender didn't want to focus on him. He wanted to make it more about the boy. So that's why the title right, yeah. the title was changed. Um, but and again, but, written written in the U.S. Just to make mm-hmm. clear, he's already in exile at that point. Then missing but, the Aragonese home. Yeah. Honestly, it's lovely. And there's other characters, you know, there's one lady, La, La Geronima, and she's kind of always, there's a, these usual tales of morality, but like, why is she always mm. single? And they kind of, she kind of says, well, I'm always single, but, uh, you know, I still meet some men around the back of the buildings and this kind of thing. And there's like a little <laughs> bit of kind of shock about that and, you know, this kind of stuff. And they tell the boy, like, during Holy Week, don't go over there with the women bath because they gossip and they got to avoid these yeah, gossiping women. They're saying all sorts yeah. of things, you know, so there's, there's a little bit of that kind of stuff thrown in as well, but um... and, and what I like about this generation now, the post Spanish Civil War generation, just like Antonio Buero Vallejo, you mentioned earlier with La Fundacion, you know, his first play, I think it was the story of a staircase, which I love, mm. also has these very um, raw, crude characters. So like sexuality, for example, is way more op- openly discussed from now on. You know, you wouldn't have Unamuno or like Gados talk about that yeah, yet, but yeah. now, but now it's starting to really come out. And really, but this is still very um, brave because we're not really in a more liberated area. The country, like it's Franco area. So, if anything, Spain has become even more conservative once again. Sure. But these people in exile or going against the government really want to talk about sex, politics, and and <laughs> and tragedy in the civil war. Without spoiling the ending, I do want to give one little hint because there's an, a powerful thing for me. Because um, this boy's kind of trusted Mossen the whole time, you know, and taking advice from him. And things all go badly at the end, you know. And he says, but Mossen, you told me that this is what would happen. And that's not what's happening. And I feel like I've been tricked. And Mossen says, well, I, I was tricked too. Mm. And it's kind of, oh, this, this kind of respected guy that I've kind of taken the advice from, I've gone along with what he's telling me, but you know, he was also misled and now it's worked out badly for everyone. And then, of course, Mossen feels guilty for the outcome of things. But, you know, you can put trust in someone, but no one's infallible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well. So that's, that is that one, Requiem 
for a Spanish peasant. Not Requiem for a Dream, the Hubert Selby novel. Very different as well. As <laughs> yeah. Requiem for a Spanish peasant. Well, I cool. think... I'm going to just remind everyone once again to check out patreon.com slash booksboys and um, check out, you know, Film Fellows, Playboys. There's, there's as many episodes of Playboys as there are Booksboys, if not more. Uh, there's a lot of stuff on more, there. Uh, PJ, yeah. you got your piano there real quick. I think we're going to sing a song about our Patreon just improvised. All right, let's do it. See what we can manage here. Everybody, there's Booksboys got an extra hundred episodes or more on Patreon. It only costs three euros to hear us every day for a month. What? And you, you'll never be lonely because you always hear voices and you'll always hear about Dickens, Balzac, and Tolstoy methods. Woo! And I hope <laughs> that you don't mind that I wrote this little song for you because we created an episode just for you. Just Come on, Dean. Just I hope for you. you Patreon for three dollars, two pounds, fifty, or something similar in euros in the European zone. Buy a book. <laughs> so, guys, get on the uh, Patreon. Just live, improvised. You know, that's oh yeah, completely with harmonies and, and everything. <laughs> Back then, yeah. Well, let's move on to the last. Well, not the last book, the second last, but the next book that I read. Um, uh, it's I don't know if you heard of this chap, PJ. Um, I was thinking, like, who do we need to hear more about on the show? And there's two people that I really wanted to hear about. I thought I just I don't know anything about this book called Discovery of Heaven. So I thought if anyone could tell me about that, um, just for an extended period of time. But I thought maybe we'll get to that another time. And today I'll read something by this chap, Alexandre Dumas. So I don't know if you... Uh, excuse me, I think you mispronounced his name. I think his name is Alejandro Dumas. Alejandro Dumas. Well, funny you should say that, because although this is supposedly French, my copy is in Spanish. <laughs> well, I believe the, all literature is written in Spanish. Isn't that, the, isn't that what we're learning today? That is or is what... it later back in Spanish? Or... That's what I've been led to believe, my... yeah. You know, people might write in other languages, but they just before they publish, they, they you know, they, <laughs> they get someone else to just lay it back into Spanish. Yeah. So with Dumas, it's always tricky, right? So I've got I've got this book called El Caballero de Harmental. Okay, the okay. Knight of Harmental, Le Chevalier, if you will. Uh, couldn't find this uh, any reference to this in English, of course. Um, of course. Not. But it turns out it it's easier than sometimes they did release it. They just changed the title in English. It's called The Conspirators. It, have you ever considered just looking up your original French title and then looking up what what, what the book is? <laughs> I think that's easier trying to like find the Spanish English translations, especially from his from his older novels. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Well, the English again, this is a standalone, so at least we don't have to deal with is it part five of seven or part six of eight and all this. But it's part um, 10, 20. Yeah, some sometimes it's part nine, but in the other series it's part three, you know. Um, but you get a quarter of it and then it cut into a different book. But this was a standalone book. Um, it was all right. <laughs> it's it not great. You know, um, then you started off with loving Duma and now like, it, 
the enthusiasm has waned. The further I go, I know. So basically, the reason the English title is called The Conspirators is because there is a conspiracy to overthrow the regime and the monarchy and everything, and Harmental is one of the ringleaders of that. I'm going to say very little about that because it's really boring. The bits I cared about was the love story, and I, you may be shocked Indeed. to hear this. <laughs> I'm very shocked. I, I just don't know what to say, David. You in love stories? So Is that your thing? Apparently so. We do have Harmental involved in a love story. And, um, Did you say and Harvey Keitel? Har- Harmental. Har- All right, not Harvey Keitel. Okay, just to get that clear. All right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's this, there's this chap, um, Bouvard, and he, he takes in a, a girl who's essentially an orphan. Now, there's a really sad scene. It's almost Balzacian. Um, this girl's mother dies, and the mother's cold. And friend Bouvat calls around to see what's going on, knowing that she's sick, you know, to check in. And the men come to take the furniture. They leave the corpse and the little girl, and they just take the furniture because it was rented. And he says, what are you doing? And they say, well, this furniture's not going to pay for itself, so we're taking it back. She's dead. She's not paying for it anymore. And he's horrified. Like, that was their only thought, you know? The capitalist thought was their only thought. Well, wow, okay, well, it starts up very, very powerful. The little girl is like, you know, my mummy's really cold and she's not waking up and it's sad, you know? And eventually well, this guy, Bouvat, says, do you know what? I'm going to adopt you. And like, not officially, like, he always calls himself her teacher. Um, but he does admit that he couldn't do without her. And, they, you know, he takes her in and they live together, despite some scandal, like, oh, this teenage girl living with this older man. And he's like, look, I'm her teacher. I'm going to teach her. And that's all we're doing, you know. Um, and we have a, a, a familial bond, not a nothing romantic. And she, she tries to call him, you know, father and things like that. And he kind of says, look, that's not what we are, you know. Um, and then she starts to do some drawings to make money. And there's all these scenes that I love where he's like, no, you can't, you know, you, you come from a noble family originally. You can't sully yourself by, by doing work of any kind. She's like, I like doing the drawings. And he's like, well, you shouldn't be doing any kind of work because you're better than that, you know? And he spends all of his money and every penny he can get to rent this nice place with a garden for her so that she'll be happy. And... Hold on, she does the drawing. I understood he does the drawing. No, so, so she she's draws. doing the drawing and she has to get the maid to go Fair sell them because he's not happy, like, sullying her, yeah, her yeah. hand with, with work, you know? He, he kind of almost yeah, works yeah, yeah. that way. Um, he works for the king in the library, actually, but he hasn't been paid in six years. <laughs> <laughs> but he's just continuing to go to work, you know, to do his work. And he says, like, there's not a lot of work to do. I have a lot of free time. Um, <laughs> so he starts doing a second job <laughs> where he's doing like copying. You know, you'll bring documents for him to copy or whatever. Yeah. And he copies some and they're in a different language. I think they're actually in Spanish. And he copies oh. some documents, which of course turn out to be traitorous documents relating to the conspirators. And oh. then he gets himself in a, in a spot of bother. And they take him, oh. well, they lock him up temporarily, but um, just for a couple of days. They, they don't really put him in prison. They more like lock him up and tell him, copy this out and give us a copy of it. And it's going to take you a few days, but you can't leave until you do it. You know, just like luxury <laughs> prison in a palace, you know. Um, and he well, eventually yeah. does it. And he's very naive and he just he's like, yeah, I'm nothing special. And of course, these high lords, they say, look, we owe you one. So he comes back later to get the one that they owe him. 
you know, to get his favor back. Right. And all he wants is to help his pupil, something to help his pupil. And they're like, who are you? He's like, don't you remember? I was here like two days ago and you said you owed me. Like, if you ever set foot in this palace again, we will kill you. He's like, right. <laughs> so it's so just like the ungratefulness of like the aristocracy, you know. <laughs> but this nice, just nice. He's not he's not a simpleton. Like he does work in the king's library and things, but he's just trusting and he's, he's a nice, mm. lovely person. And he's willing to take this girl in. But of course she falls in love. And originally the girl's like, I will never marry anyone teacher because i just want to stay with you and we're so happy yay and then she falls in love with harmental just like oh hold on this guy's handsome with harvey Keitel. with harmental all right here we go. i don't know who harvey Keitel is <laughs> <laughs> okay okay so she falls in love with with harmental and of course he's the lead conspirator and then it all starts to unravel and he of course wasn't it her own teacher who translated the documents that expose oh. harmental and all this kind of stuff is unraveling and everyone's getting in trouble and, you know, what's going to what's gonna happen and he's arrested and all this kind of stuff. So it all goes to a big uh, crescendo. But I, I care more about the romantic tale than I do about the conspirators' <laughs> tale, if I'm being honest. Yeah, yeah, I get it, yeah. Well, I'm more interested in, in the in the old man's tale. That, that's fun. That, I really like the beginning of that story. There's a lot of potential there. The old man wow, is the- just a nice character and he is naive you know he always thinks like well, why why would they be interested in me you know but he's just got himself tangled in this kind of web now and he mm. kind of like wants to not be involved you know he just wants to go back to like living with his pupil and just being a teacher and being nice you know well i do like the plot a lot more, more than most of the other duma books even that you mentioned but you said but you didn't find it so good because why well, it was good. It's just that the bits with the conspirators, which is like the middle third, it's kind of dull. It's yeah, just that's political for like a third of the book. And I'm like, this is, again, where's the romance, you know? Um, I agree with you, actually, in this case. I think it's the other part sounds way more interesting than the conspirators part. Yeah. So the whole time I was just thinking, get back to this lovely story that you've presented me with. But yeah, it's, yeah. It's almost that Anna Karenina method of just inserting something else in the middle and it just takes up a lot of space. And I'm like, Totally. I don't want this bit. <laughs> and was this serialized? Was he? Because I feel like uh, often with these stories, like with Dickens, not that they're, they're amazing authors, but I feel like sometimes they're obviously pressured both by time and mm. obviously Dickens at least did. My Dickens dad told me that. Was. Yeah. No, but Dickens also said, according to my dad, that he did change the storyline according to what yeah. the most people thought was the best. So did Dumas do something similar, or do you feel not like that I, not that I knew of? I don't know if they were serializing novels in France the way they were yeah. in England. Um, I suppose I can't. I can't be sure, you know. But I'm not going to say very much at all else about it. It's a nice one. It's the longest book I read it because it was like a 300 pager. It was a proper book, not a novella, you know. But the rest of the books I read were quite short. But some of the romance between the. Um, Harmental's first name is Raoul, so that'll make things uh, less confusing for, for our friend Harvey. Um, the little notes <laughs> they write to each that. other are very nice, and <laughs> he gets a little bit cockheadish at times with him, which you know I love. Um, but this this man can't believe, he's like, why would they want to speak to me? He's like, well, only because you're involved in high treason. He's like, what? Like, I translated those documents, you know? It's it's yeah, a nice yeah. it is It is lovely, and I wouldn't say it's as good as, you know, the classic Dumas, but it might be yeah. worth uh, worth you know checking out. 
Um, sure, if you want hardcore, yeah, the chance, yeah, yeah. If you're if you've liked the good ones, then go so. check check this out. So, hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands, and they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com/style to get free shipping and three hundred and sixty five day returns on your next order. Quince.com/style. 